Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. This podcast has not been sanctioned. The battleground is Monday nights. 80. For a campaign of 83 consecutive weeks. Three. There was a clear winner. This is story war. Weeks. This is the story of that campaign. 83 weeks. 20 years later, the time has come for the whole truth. For the whole truth. This is 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff, and the man of the hour is with us. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am doing very well. It's been a great day. Got a lot done. Got some great potential, things I'm looking forward to, including this show. I know you're excited about it, which makes me excited about it. Our topic today, and I am pretty excited about this, we're going to talk about the DX Invasion because it happened twice, and we're going to talk about the Slamboree Challenge with Vince McMahon. Let's talk about it. April 27th, 1998, we're at the Norfolk Scope in Norfolk, Virginia. Nitro is going down here, and DX is going to fire the first shot, or what they claim is the first shot in the Monday Night War. A couple of weeks prior to this is when the WWF finally toppled Monday Night Nitro and ended that 83-week streak of Nitro beating Raw. That, of course, happened on April 13th. On that night, Raw did a 4.63. Nitro did a 4.34. The next week, though, you guys bounced back strong. The second highest rating in the history of Nitro. Hulk Hogan draws a 5.11, and uh, he wins the world title from Randy Savage uh, just a day after all of that happened at Spring Stampede 1998. So I guess we should go ahead and catch everybody up. Raw that night, the week after they have the 83-week winning streak snapped. Only does a 4.4. So Nitro bounces back in a really big way. I mean, it is the fourth highest rated Raw up to that point with a 4.4. But Hogan pulls you guys out of it and does a 5.11. At this point, do you feel like, hey, it was just a stumbling block. They just got lucky one week. Did you feel like you needed to pull out the big guns with Hogan to sort of bounce back? Obviously it worked. What was the strategy and how are you feeling about it? No, we, we definitely, I definitely, I say we, but in this particular case, I, I was well aware that there were pretty significant changes going on in WWE. Um, and it goes back to really, if you really look back at it, it, it started in 97. It was kind of a slow build. Um, sometime in November, I think in 1997, we started to see Vince McMahon, you know, the, the former announcer begin to emerge slowly as Mr. McMahon, more and more references to him as the owner, as opposed to kind of keeping him behind the desk and nobody really knew what his role is, or at least they tried to pretend they didn't. Um, sometime, I think in December, um, Vince McMahon actually went out on raw and talked about how there was a change coming in creative. And it was kind of interesting because he, you know, he, he couched it as some kind of, you know, 
cathartic moment where Vince McMahon and his team were sitting in a room and decided they were going to, I think his exact words were, expand the creative envelope and become more contemporary. And really what they were doing, because they've been getting their ass kicked for a year and a half, and so badly by Nitro in the format, in the formula that we were using, that I think Vince McMahon finally threw in this towel and it was like, if we can't beat him, let's join him. And that's when that's when it really started to become apparent to me that they were going to compete. The characters started getting a little bit more raw, a little bit more real. Um, they started losing some of the goofy shit and started getting to be a little bit more adult. But when it really hit for me, and when I really knew I was in for a fight, because up at that in '97 we were still kicking them around, we were still curb stomping them. Sorry, Seth, still curb stomping them in 97 and and even in early 98 so it wasn't what it wasn't at that point you know right after the first of the year it wasn't so neck and neck but what really t- made me pause was a phone call i got from zane breslov and zane still had friends um that were deep inside of wwe one in particular and i'm not going to name them He's no longer there, so it doesn't matter, but I'm still not going to name him. Uh, but he was a very, very well-respected re- well uh, person and probably in close proximity to the to the core management there. And he and, he and Zane remained good friends. And I remember I was down in Florida. Actually, I was taking some flying lessons down in Orlando in Kissimmee, actually, in Florida. And I had a break in the action, and I got a page because, believe it or not, <laughs> I used a pager back then. And... I got a page from Zane. So I went to a payphone and I called Zane and he said, Eric, you're not going to believe this, but WWE has signed Mike Tyson. And as soon as the words registered inside of my skull, I knew the shit was on and I knew that Vince was getting serious. It wasn't just verbiage. It wasn't just, you know, a promo to try to, you know, galvanize the audience and, 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 and create the perception that WWE was going to, you know, be competitive. He was actually making a pretty ballsy move. You know, Mike Tyson is, and I'm a, you know, I'm a Mike Tyson fan. I was then and I am now. Um, but, you know, Mike's reputation back then was pretty, it was, it was pretty toxic. And for Vince to make a move like that um, told me that he was not only coming, but he was coming strong. That was really the first time I started to, to really begin to get a little nervous because there was a definite shift in the way they were producing their content. And it continued. And then certainly, you know, Mike Tyson and Steve Austin and then, you know, the, the, the whole Austin McMahon thing that emerged out of that, all of that is what really started to rattle me, to be honest. Well, and it certainly showed because for the first time in a long time, they bounce back and they win that rating on April 13th. And that sort of smashes the 83 week win streak from WCW, but you guys bounce back the very next week with Hogan sort of circling back to what brought you there in the first place. And I'm sure we'll circle back and and discuss that in long form. Another time. Let's talk about why we're here, man. It's April 27th, 1998. We're at the Norfolk scope, of course, in Norfolk, Virginia. Where right up the road, the WWF is running in Hampton, Virginia, and you guys are only about 30 minutes apart. 
And, uh, of course I think everybody recognizes that this is the day where DX would have you believe they drove a tank to nitro. It's actually a Jeep and, uh, Meltzer wrote of the incident. They also carefully spliced the crawl on the marquee of the scope for a different event where all the tickets were free and made it appear that the tickets were free for nitro. Several times in later segments, DX referred to all the free tickets WCW gives away in order to make it appear as if the buildings are sold out. Now, of course, in actuality, there were 632 free tickets that night. 328 of those were media trades. Only 307 were comps. And Meltzer even notes that that's really an unusually low number for a TV taping, especially in this era. I know you don't normally get along with Big Dave, but uh, dude's setting the record straight here, is he not? Well, it's not that I don't get along with him. I got nothing personal against Dave other than the bullshit that he tends to write more often than not. But in this case, he was accurate. It's worth mentioning that you had Shivani mention on air just a little while after that airs that the show had been sold out for months and that 30 miles away, they couldn't give tickets away. And of course your show hadn't been sold out for months, but it had been sold out several weeks in advance. That's splitting hairs mentioning this though, that, you know, we've been sold out and they can't give tickets away. That's not a Tony Schiavone call. That's a Bischoff directive. Is it not? I don't remember. Probably. I would, I would, if I had to bet, I bet it would be, but I shit. I don't, it's 20 years ago, bro. I don't remember if I directed it or not, or maybe somebody else did. I'll take the heat though. Yeah, I did it. There you go. Hunter's trying to get people to sort of cheer that Bischoff sucks. Uh, of course, everyone agrees with that. And he's also doing, I was a heel. What kind of, but no, that's what I mean. Yeah, Yeah. he does. Exactly. Yeah. He tries to get people to sort of chant and cheer for WCW sucking and nobody really goes along with that. But when they, they want to cheer or boo the heel Bischoff, of course. Yeah. Everybody's down with that. Uh, Hunter's also doing the old let my people go gimmick insinuating that Hall and Nash are actually being held against their will. Waltman's there trying to kick down the door saying he wants to speak to Bischoff and make him tell him face to face why he was fired instead of doing it by FedEx. Now in your book, Eric, you wrote that you sort of inadvertently helped the WWF by firing Waltman. And you even wrote that it was probably one of the biggest favors you did for the company at the time, not your company, theirs. In hindsight, how critical was that to this story they're trying to tell? You know, that's, I think that's one of the most under discussed, um, elements of this whole period of time. Um, I, I fired Waltman and I, and I, and I was justified in firing him. You know, there was no, I had no qualms about firing him. The, the situation had been that, you know, Sean Waltman, like a lot of other guys, uh, was represented by Barry Bloom, the common denominator in a lot of this fucked up chaos. And we had reached an agreement. Handshake, letter of intent, if you will, basic terms that outlined Sean's new deal. Of course, that deal took a couple weeks, perhaps a little longer. The wheels of the legal process turned slowly, even back then. Again, you know, Turner Legal was separate necessarily from from WCW, so I didn't have you know my my hands around anybody's throats. I couldn't, you know, drag them down the hall, kicking and screaming and telling them to get deals done quicker. But it took time, and but we had a deal. We had a deal in principle. We had a letter of intent. Everybody knew what we were doing. Sean knew what he was going to make. 
everything was cool. And then when Diana Myers, who was the representative from Turner Legal who, who worked inside of our office, um, finally got around to getting the deal to Sean and Barry, they balked and wanted more money after we had made a deal. And that just pissed me off. And there was no way I could let that happen. If I were to, if I were to have let that fly, if I would have renegotiated after we had already come to terms, then it would have just been chaos, even more, more than it already was. So I said, fuck it. <laughs> You're out of here. And I, and I intentionally wanted to make an example of Sean. Because you just at – at a certain point, you have to draw a line, and I drew it, and I cut Sean loose. And that was a mistake. Well, it wasn't a mistake. I was I'm justified in doing it because that was just, in my opinion, that was just about holding somebody up real close to it, and, and I, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. But I really, in, in doing so, really didn't think it through. I was so hot. And I was so pissed off that both – and I was hotter at Barry than I was at Sean, quite honestly. You know, Barry was a friend of mine. I brought Barry into WCW because, number one, we were friends. Number two, as things were really going – starting to go well and we were bringing in more talent. And, you know, the, the negotiations and talent agreements started really escalating – not only for the top guys like Hogan and, and Brett and Hall and Nash, but, you know, even guys underneath. And a lot of those guys couldn't really afford attorneys. And I'm not talking about the top guys. I'm talking about guys like Sean. You know, he wasn't a top guy, but he was, you know, he's in the middle, upper third of the card in, in, in terms of his contract status. And a lot of these guys didn't have agents. They didn't have attorneys. Um, and and they, you know, they wanted somebody to help them guide them through the process. So I made a deal with Barry, you know, a handshake deal because we were friends. I said, Barry, it would really be helpful to the talent if they had somebody like you that can help explain the agreement as their manager and help them understand the deal as we're negotiating it. But the deal I had with Barry, I said, Barry, whatever, you, you know, we'll do this and I'll introduce you into this process. As long as you give me your word, you're never going to use that opportunity against me because I'm bringing you into this process. I'm in, I'm, I'm soliciting you to, to, to come into the company and help talent understand their deals. And Terry, excuse me, Barry gave me his word. And that was when, you know, at that point I knew Barry had betrayed me. He betrayed my trust and he was trying to use his position with me and the fact that I brought him into the company and encouraged him and encouraged talent to use him. And now he was going to exploit that and try to leverage it for better deals with WWE. And that's exactly what he did. And I was so pissed off at Barry that I fired Sean. I couldn't fire Barry, but I fired Sean. And you said you could justify it. And, uh do you think it was the right thing to do to fire him when he's sidelined with a neck injury that he suffered near ring while I was paying him? I had been paying him while he had been sidelined with an injury. I didn't stop paying him. I stopped. I, I fired him when he reneged on the deal that we had an agreement for. So yeah, I didn't stop paying him because he was hurt. 
I stopped paying him because he reneged on the deal, the, the letter of intent and the handshake that we had in the agreement that we had. That's why I fired him. Waltman would claim at the time that this was essentially a power play aimed at getting back at his buddy, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, whose backstage influence, maybe you wanted to sort of hinder a little bit. Yeah, the, yeah. At the time, of course, that's what he said. I think if you talk to Sean today, he would have a different perspective on that. Is it, is but, it, was it fair of you to come out and say, Waltman was a competent performer when sober, but sober periods were quote few and far between and quote, in many ways, Sean was lucky to even have a job end quote. That was a little bro. That was a little brutal. Yeah. You think it's just, you know, we're sitting here saying, oh, it was fine to fire him. And then I fucking buried him. Well, when did I, when did I do that though? Did I do that right away? Or did I do that after he showed up on TV and cut a promo on me? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Listen to you defending this. I mean, no, no, come on. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, yeah, no. you're fucking right. I'll defend it. Here's what I'm saying though. Force you went, out now. Come on now. Don't just skim over this shit. You, Why wouldn't I defend it? Because you went it's super like, personal with sober and those times were few and far between. That's a low blow. Is it not? Hmm. We'll come back to it another time. Um, Hey, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. Go ahead. How would you describe the scene when you saw it on TV? Not as you were there. I mean, we're talking about the DX invasion, not with a tank, with a fucking Jeep. But when you see it on TV, you see what they put together on raw. How would you describe it? Pretty fucking awesome. I'm, I'm just hoping you would say that Meltzer says it was all pretty stupid, but, but one thing all fans knew by 1998 was that the companies really hated each other. And that's really what we're driving at here. This really is the Monday night war. And in hindsight, do you think this back and forth that you guys were doing right here was good for business overall, but also in the end kind of bad for WCW? Well, obviously, you know, <laughs> of course. I mean, it'd be pretty stupid of me to look back from now, from where I stand now sure. <laughs> and, and say, oh no, it was really smart. It was really great. No, they, look, it was, it was great for the business and there's nobody that can argue that the back and forth, the Monday night wars were great for business then. And I still believe in, in the core of my soul that it had not been for the Monday night wars. There may or may not even be a WWE right now. The, 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 the end result of those wars raised the profile of sports entertainment, professional wrestling, and the WWE and WCW at the time to such a high level that it had never been before that it set the companies up or the company, in this case, WWE, to really expand and grow. And we forced that issue because of the war. Otherwise, it had been doing the same silly slapstick garbage that they had been doing up to that point in 95 and 96 and throughout 1997 when they just couldn't afford to do it anymore. So, yeah, I think it's safe to say and fair to say, and I think it's even objective to say that that back and forth in that war was good for business. Ultimately, it wasn't good for WCW because we lost. They did it better than we did. They, they took our formula 
they took the anarchy formula. They took the evil boss character of Eric Bischoff and Mr. McMahon did it better. They took the over the top R rated approach to content that we had been flirting with and they went over the top with it. They took our formula and they did it better. It's like the Japanese with cars. They didn't invent them, but damn, they sure made them better. And that's what they did. And, and hats off to them. Um, but I, but it, there's no way I can at this point in my life and looking back now, even though it affected me in so many ways, there's no way I can look back at it now and say, oh, that was a, that was a bad decision. It, it wasn't. Ultimately, I think it was a great decision. Triple H says that this invasion is really just in response to you guys sort of counterbooking towns, meaning if they book the town for a show, you try to go head to head with them as close as possible. And this is like the fifth time it had happened recently. Is that an Eric Bischoff strategy or was someone else in WCW steering those efforts to book near where they were to hurt them? No, 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 no. I, I don't think that I want to, before we do this. Well, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, it's your show. This is your, this is, <laughs> you're going to, you're going to, you're going to take me through the timeline. I don't want to, to jump around, but that's not true. I didn't have anything to do with booking the towns. That was Zane Bresloff, you know, and to a degree, Gary Jester, that wasn't my deal. And, you know, a lot of times <laughs> there were often times when they did the same thing. There were often, there was a lot of billings that we couldn't get into because they had us blocked out. There was a constant battle going on between the two companies, especially back then, particularly as we got farther northeast where they really had a big stronghold on the arenas. And they had contracts with arenas that essentially blocked us. Um, perfectly legal, you know, but almost monopolistic. Um, but they got away with it. So there was a constant battle with arenas, but that wasn't Eric Bischoff sitting behind the desk going, okay, guys, let's find out where they're going and let's book an arena down the street. That's, that's bullshit. Let me just say, I can't wait for you and I to talk about Zane Bresloff a little more. It's not our topic today, but probably one of the unsung heroes of professional wrestling. Um, triple H sort of takes credit for the idea, but Vince Russo is the one who actually wrote and put the words rocket launcher in the script. And in the end, the WWF's magic man, Richie Posner made that shit happen within 24 hours. Well, it's a Jeep. Where do you stand on this narrative now for 20 years? We've heard people say, and then we drove a fucking tank tonight. It's a goddamn Jeep. Is it not? It was a Jeep. <laughs> and like, <laughs> and you, you, you remember, I don't know if it was two weeks ago or three weeks ago on our first show. You know, I've talked about this before, and I hate to repeat myself because I know the audience doesn't really want to hear it. But when you, when people tell these same stories over and over and over again, because a lot of these moments, like you know, the invasion and so forth, they come up. They come up with me. They come up with everybody else involved with it. And guys tell these stories. Every time they tell the story, they they make it a little bigger. They make it a little more exciting, a little more interesting. And they tell the story in a way that puts a brighter light on them. And I think this is a perfect example of that. Now I've, I've heard <laughs> looking for a great mother's day or father's day gift idea. I was, and I found it at paint your life with paint your life. You'll get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say paint your life transforms your photos into a one of a kind, beautiful hand painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. 
and you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Based on everything I've heard, I'm not going to name names. I didn't have anything to do with Vince Russo. He may have been a part of it, but my understanding is Bruce Pritchard did as well. Right. Or more so. So, you know, I wasn't there. I'm not going to, you know, take size or claim that I know for a fact something that I wasn't there to witness myself, unlike many other people. Um, I don't know who came up with it, but it was effective. It was a fucking brilliant move. Whoever came up with it, it worked and it worked primarily not because the idea of them driving in a Jeep that they call a tank and dressed up like, you know, comic book soldiers and all of that, not because of any of that. It worked in my opinion because of Sean Waltman, right? It worked because a, a big character in the NWO, and Sean was. He was a supporting cast member. He wasn't Nash. He wasn't Hall. He wasn't Hogan. But he, damn, he was important. And he was a part of that, that chemistry and that, that rebellion that NWO res, you know, represented to the audience. And when I fired him and he jumped over and, and cut that promo and then was a part of the invasion, that was a crack in the NWO armor, a crack in the WCW armor. I think Sean Waltman probably deserves more credit for the success of that invasion than Triple H, everybody else that was in that little Jeep that they call a tank, and whoever's idea it was. Because if Sean Waltman would not have been a part of that, it would have flopped. Or at the, you know, I don't know if it would have flopped, but it certainly would not have had the impact that ultimately it had. I think Sean Waltman was the star of that. Russo freestyled. We have no idea what was going to happen. We don't know if Eric Bischoff is going to send 10 guys out there to beat the crap out of them. We don't know if he's going to call the cops and there, everybody's going to be arrested, but that was the appeal of it. The unpredictability. How in God's name, can you turn that off? Obviously you guys weren't ready for this to the best of your recollection. Was anyone directed to call the police that day? No. And that's again, just Russo, you know, blowing more sunshine up his own ass, which is a really, you know, hard thing to do, but he's pretty good at it. Um, I, first of all, how would I, if, if I don't know they're coming, how the hell would I have had 10 guys waiting for him? Well, I mean, just on the face of it, isn't it pretty fucking stupid? I mean, I don't know because some of the guys who were coming, their brother works there. And Scott Armstrong even says he had heard that the WWF was coming, but he didn't know what that meant or, or how. So you're saying as far as you knew, there were no rumors about them showing up. 
like that. I heard I heard nothing about it. If I would have known about it, and I, and I listen, my my body of work in that period of time speaks for itself. Had I known that they were coming, I would have had the door open. I would have instructed Doug Dillinger to tell his security crew to make sure that they could make their way to the ring because that would have been amazingly good TV on my network. There's no way I would have had 10 guys. You know, Bruce is so full of shit. That's just, again, making himself sound more dramatic and more, you know, and, and, and smarter and more creative. We had no idea that they were coming. Had I known they were coming, I would have invited them into the ring. And we would have let the cards fall where they may because nothing would have happened. These guys wouldn't have beat the shit out of each other. They're all friends. The boys didn't have any – they didn't have a dog in the hunt. They, they but, could care less. But that's, I guess there's two things I want to ask there. One, were you at all concerned that, I mean, had the door been opened, it would have essentially been curtain call number two and this whole you know, back no, and forth war is no. really exposed as not really existing? Absolutely not. Why would I have cared? Would well, I have cared if the WWE to try to get forget? <laughs> you got to remember again. Context is freaking king here, people. You can believe me. You can not believe me. You can think I'm trying to put myself over, but just for a fraction of a second, put yourself in my shoes. WWE up a year and a half before that, two years before that, Vince McMahon's mo was never acknowledge a talent. Or excuse me, never acknowledge a competition. Don't put him over. Hell, he was selling like a bitch. <laughs> I would have loved to have him have his crew show up on my show. It would have been awesome. Talk about selling. My God. It would have been perfect. When you were on Jericho's podcast, you once said, it's the one thing I really regret. If I could change one moment, it would be that where we found out WWE was at the door, I would have let him in. Not that I would have wanted Haku or Dave Taylor or one of those guys to do it, but it would have been the greatest moment in wrestling. You still feel there that you go. way. Okay. Ditto that. Uh, so let's keep going here and, and talk about, you know, your memories of that day. And so you're saying you didn't know they were there. You know, nobody really knew. And then you find out they are there. How did you find out who told you? Where were you? What was going on at the time? I was in the center of the ring when this all went down. I believe I was cutting a promo in, in the ring. And I remember, uh, Annette Yothers, who was, uh, she was kind of a floor director. She worked really close with Craig Leathers and, you know, she was very instrumental in, you know, pulling the, helping to pull the whole thing off. And I had an IFB in my ear, but as was always the case, especially in the scope, cause it was a small arena. It was a little hard to hear the truck, especially when you're in the middle of a promo. And I remember, you know, the truck was probably trying to, to get my attention and I might've just been ignoring them because I was in the middle of my, my promo. Um, and this, this I wasn't done. Annette, this uh, wasn't done live, right? I mean, you're saying you're just doing a walkthrough that day, doing a promo in the ring. No, I'm not doing a promo. I'm doing it. I'm in the ring, but that's what I'm saying though. This was taped in the afternoon. It's daytime. So, I mean, there wouldn't have been a that, crowd that there. part of it. I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know anything about that. My recollection is that that went down while we were, while we were alive on the show. Well, but that's it, how I remember it. It would have been fucking daytime. I mean, the, the video is, is daytime and, and this would have been evening obviously. So it would have been dark. Um, but either way you were in the ring 
working through a promo or doing a walkthrough or whatever, when you hear. And so when you come out of the ring, you it's know, over. it's over, it's already happened. It's over. Okay. Kevin Nash says he drove by it and didn't even realize it was DX. He just thought it was like crazy fans. Booker T says he didn't know about it till it actually happened. And, and Scott Armstrong says that, you know, as we mentioned earlier, he knew something was going to happen. The WWF might be doing something, but no one knew what. And, and again, I guess we should mention Scott Armstrong's brother is road dog. Uh, Waltman and Hunter were, were sort of on record as saying they thought the right idea was to go straight into the building first. And that that would have been smarter than sort of teasing it and giving WCW an opportunity to close the door. But Bruce Pritchard would tell a different story and says he was told that legally they couldn't go into the building. So that's the reason they sort of played it out the way they did. But Nash is on the other side of the door, according to his story with Scott Hall, trying to convince the guy at the arena to open that big garage door up. Okay. Now, wait a minute. See, this is why it's so hard for me. So in one breath, we're saying Kevin Nash didn't know what was going on. He dry, he drove by it and saw it. And now all of a sudden he's inside of the building trying to open the door, which is it? Well, here's what happens. As you recall, they're, they're, they're posted out front interviewing fans for an extended period of time. They're, they're shown doing promos and driving up to the scene. And then eventually later is when they try to come down the ramp. So they had been shooting all that other shit as Kevin drove past, because it's not like they just drove straight for the door. If that makes sense. Um, no, it doesn't. I mean, I, I mean, I, whatever. Which part don't you understand, Eric? They didn't drive straight so, straight down the fucking ramp. They sat out front and interviewed fans and did promos first. No, I'm just trying to get the timing. I'm trying to put this together in my head. Well, and we go well, from Kevin it, Nash driving by night. and not know what's going on to all of a sudden in this conversation, Kevin Nash is trying to get somebody to open up the door. So whatever. Sorry for being you know a little confused. Yeah, it was 20 years confused. ago, and the way you're laying it out is just a little bit fucked up. But let's continue. What's more fucked up is that you think you're in the promo with fans and it's goddamn daytime that is pretty fucked up it's daytime how are you doing a promo <laughs> it's fucking daytime eric it's You're 20 just, years ago they're on the east coast it's an eastern time zone they're not in fucking california it's clearly nighttime when you're cutting a promo how do I know it's daytime when I'm inside of a building? I'm trying to remember. Fuck, I'm trying to put together something that happened 20 freaking years ago. I'm doing my goddamn best. <laughs> Let's try to stay in a timeline if okay. we can. Okay. All right. Fine. Uh, what was happening on the other side of the door as far as you heard it? Since you say Nash and Hall weren't fucking there, but you wouldn't know. I didn't say they weren't there. You're I was trying to figure out where they were because you said they were driving by. Would you let go of this shit? Okay. What's going on on the other side of the door as far as you've been That's led to believe? I know. I'm in the ring. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, Booker T is on record saying, quote, I think we could have taken those four guys if we had to. They made their point coming to our town, our building on our night. Now, he's pretty fired up, you know, obviously in hindsight, not so much. Do you remember any of the other boys, maybe some old school guys who were really upset by this and took it personal or is everybody buds? And this is just sort of silly. I think it's a ladder, you know, and again, I... that night, you know, after it all happened, we went about our show. We're doing our shit. It's kind of like didn't think about it too much until the next day. But my guess is 
the boys, like I said before we started this, they didn't have a dog in the in in, in this hunt. They, they you know, they, half of them were friends with the crew in WWF, right. and vice versa. So there would have been no punches thrown. I mean, wasn't going to be throwing any punches. There wasn't anybody back there that was going to stand up for WCW like they did back in the fifties and the sixties when guys were trying to raid each other's territories. That wouldn't happen. I'm sure for a minute. Everybody was, you know, the adrenaline started to pump because it was kind of like, hey, what the hell's going on? But I can't imagine any of the names that you mentioned throwing down with any of the boys from WWF. I just can't imagine it. Um, Billy Gunn says, I heard some of the other guys talking. They thought it was just the greatest thing that ever happened in wrestling. It was just management not coming up with it. I think they were the ones who were upset, not the boys. I agree. So, I mean, you were pissed off about this, right? We think it's cool, but you wish you'd have came up with it. True that. So, I mean, who else is, is in the fired up camp? Not the boys. Anybody in the office? Do you remember having a, a big reaction to this one way or another? No, not really. I mean, there was a reaction to it. It was, you know, people were shocked. People were surprised. It was something that never happened before. It was a big move. It was a ballsy move. They got the better of us. We were all well aware that the stunt um, was extremely effective, uh, but nobody was like pissed off and throwing shit in their office. And you know, right. you know, we didn't have attorneys, you know, wanting to sue. And you know, it, it, nobody got like too bent out of shape over it. It was like, okay, great, they got one. Well, let's figure out what to do next. We'll come back to the attorney line. Chris Jericho said a few of the boys were standing out there looking out the window at DX. And he says, you came up and said, go back to work. There's nothing to look at here. You remember that? Fuck. No. Triple H says that he brought up to Vince. What if they send 10 guys over to raw and pound on the door? And allegedly Vince said, let them in. What show are you going to watch? The one with everyone on it or the one with no one on it. Did anybody ever suggest this? Like, Hey man, we should just go to their place now. No. Allegedly, just in case Ken Shamrock and Jerry Briscoe were uh, near the parking lot in case shit popped off up there. And I think this gets overlooked a lot because the WWF blew up in ratings that night with a 5.5 and a 5.9. So folks just talk about the big number and the big angle, but they don't really go over the fact that WCW was preempted by two NBA games that night. So a one hour <laughs> special edition of Nitro aired after midnight that night. So Nitro existed but in hour long form and well after midnight, because there's two basketball games, this really is, you know, this stunt is the right angle at the right place at the exact right time. Wouldn't you agree, Eric? Absolutely. The next day, uh, according to the observer, this is straight from the observer. One top executive from the WWF called another from WCW and basically tried to apologize over this incident, claiming it wasn't done to make WCW look bad. Not sure if he also tried to sell, tell him the moon is made of green cheese. Do you remember the call or hearing that anybody from up there called you guys to say, sorry, we didn't mean to make you look bad. No. Um, overall, and, and by the way, and by the way, for, you know, those four, you know, people that want that listen to this and, and feel the need to point out the things that I don't remember when I say, when you ask me, do I remember it? And I say, no, that doesn't mean I, there's, I don't have a recollection or my memory shot. All it really means is just because Dave Meltzer reported it. And I don't remember ever hearing anything like it inside of WCW offices, more likely it was bullshit. 
where would Dave Meltzer had heard that? And what executive would have taken that call from, from WCW? What executive other than me would have taken that call? There would have been none. What are they going to call Gary Juster, Jim Barnett? I mean, who would they, who would they have called to apologize to Yeah. other than me? So no, I don't, I don't recall it because I don't think it happened overall. What'd you think of the stunt? Thought it was great. I was jealous. <laughs> I was, I was fraught with envy. I love it. So DX is back to pull another stunt this time on May 11th. And now they're invading the WCW offices in Smyrna. And here, according to the observer, Nick Lambros would call 911 to quote, try and get them arrested for trespassing and lewd actions. And the police came. And while they weren't arrested, they were cited and detained for a few minutes to a half hour, depending on which story you believe. Was it Nick Lambros? And was he acting on your behalf when he called 911 here? Well, Nick Lambros was the attorney that worked with WCW. He didn't work for me as I've detailed enough times now, but he was the attorney um, in the WCW offices and he wasn't acting on my behalf. He was acting as an attorney for Turner broadcasting. So the segment starts with Hunter acting like he can't read the no trespassing sign and that actually aired in court later. And they'd have to defend that. Of course, they're trying to get into the CNN center to see Ted Turner and they managed to get some of the employees there fired up so much so that allegedly one of the folks crotch chopping with DX is actually a TBS employee. Did you ever hear about that? And if so, did you get that motherfucker fired? Yeah, you can't fire anybody in at, at, Turner. At, at that period of time. The only way you could fire an employee is if, Turner broadcasting is if, they, if, they, if they murdered somebody in the elevator. <laughs> oh, that's so fun. That's so fun. True. Um, had you guys had a meeting, you know, Hey, if something like this happens again, like what happened at the scope, here's the way we're going to handle it. Or was it nope. just one and done one and done? Uh, Bruce Pritchard has even gone on record as saying they had the old fake tape switcheroo this time for the camera guys. When their security gets involved at the CNN center. And these segments also have a photo of the CNN center with spray paint on the side that says suck it. And they also pretend to blow up the CNN center. It's all pretty silly, but man, raw kicks major ass with it. It gets a 4.72 rating. It's the highest ever in a head to head situation. Nitro loses only doing a 4.26 and Meltzer would be sure to note quote losing in every quarter hour. And it's the most significant rating edge for the WWF in years. When that rating comes out, what are you thinking here? What were the, what were the rate? What was the rating separation again? 4.72 to 4.26. Okay. So that was a half a point. The half a point didn't scare me at all. First of all, even back then more so now, um, just because the, the television universe is so much bigger now, but even then a half a point was not quite a rounding error error, more significant than a rounding error, but you know, 15% on any given week, especially coming off of a couple, you know, a couple weeks layoff or being delayed, you know, it's a seasonal thing. No, the, the half a point wouldn't have bothered me too much, but the fact that they were on our ass, the way they were on our ass and they were outperforming us at our own formula that bothered me a lot, but not the half a point. 
You wrote in your book, it was more about coincidence and circumstance than talent. It may have been a blatant ripoff of NWO, but it worked. And the fact that they had balls big enough to come over and show up at CNN center and WCW headquarters only made it cooler. Part of me said, I wish I'd been able to do that. You really dug the spirit of this. Did you not? Oh, fuck. I loved it. You know, what's really funny is, uh, and I don't, you know, it's impossible for me to remember when exactly, but there was a point in time. It was, I'm sure it was in 1997 when Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Pac, probably three or four other people in the room. And we were kind of high-fiving ourselves. We were pretty proud of ourselves, you know, in, in terms of the type of things that we were doing and the way we were kicking the WWF's ass at the time. And we talked about, in fact, I, you know, to bring up Zane Bresloff again, we had talked about the guys showing up, Scott, Kevin, and Pac showing up and Zane Bresloff was going to find a way because he knew a lot of the the arena management and he was pretty familiar with them because he worked for WWF for so many years. Um, We were going to buy a couple hard camera, uh, facing hard camera ringside seats to a WWF event, and we were going to have the NWO show up in the WWF and just sit there with tickets that they would have purchased. So it would have been really hard to throw them out. They weren't going to disrupt anything. They were just going to sit there and we talked about doing it and we came pretty close to doing it. And I don't recall why we didn't. There was some logistical pop, probably a legal reason why we didn't at that time. You wrote in your book that you, you sort of sketched out with Scott Hall and a few others in 1996. And you talked about it, what you described ad nauseum arrayed on Titan towers. But then specifically what you just said, buying tickets to WWE event, making sure you're in front of the hard camera, you know, viewing angle. But you ultimately said because of the lawsuit that they filed, you know, about the likeness for both Hall and Nash and the fact that the NWO had gotten over to the degree it had. So I think any plans of that probably stalled a little bit when the Hogan turn happened and it just fucking blew up. At least that's the insinuation you make in your book. Yeah, and like I said, I, I don't recall whether it was 96 or 97, but 96 makes sense, and we did. We had talked about it, and for whatever reason, we decided not to do it. So the the, the thinking, the logic, the, the the creative kind of premise of invading uh, was something that I thought was really cool, but we didn't do it, and they did, and they did it really, really well. You also wrote, while the creative side of me dug the DX invasion bit, the business side of me said, okay, what do we do now? The question, the, or the answer rather, was to take it up a notch or two or 10. Were you brainstorming immediately after the, the scope invasion before the whole Turner thing, you know, the CNN tower and the CNN center and all that before all of that, were you already brainstorming how you could respond or do you not come up with this whole, I'm going to challenge Vince McMahon bit until after they come to the Turner offices. No, it was after they came to the Turner offices because I used the fact that, you know, they, they had Sean Waltman, you know, showing up at and the, and the rest of DX, but they were showing up at the CNN Center and, you know, Sean was trying to call me out and he wanted to confront me and all that kind of shit. And they showed up when when they knew we weren't around. Right. You know, that, if I would have been in the building, I would have come out and we could have had a conversation. And, and, if, and if we would have planned it, we could have had cameras there and we could have made it really work and had fun. Uh, 
But they didn't. They showed up. So I just I took that fact of them showing up when they knew we weren't going to be there, pretending that they wanted to confront us, and I turned that around. And that was kind of the premise of my my promo, um, shoot promo that I cut on Vince McMahon. Is like why the hell are you sending that scrawny little Sean Waltman to come out and confront me when he when you when you all know I'm not there? Why don't you do? Why don't you be a man? Grab your balls, come on down, and let's meet in the ring. That was the premise of my promo, but that didn't happen until after, obviously, they showed up at the CNN Center. That's when the idea kind of began to become clear in my head. And well, it becomes clear because the exact same night that they do that DX of the WCW. You know, the DX invasion of the WCW offices, when it airs, you go to the center of the ring on nitro and challenge Vince McMahon to meet you in the ring at Slamboree. Do you talk to anybody about that idea beforehand or you just freestyle it and stomp to the ring and get it done? I think I talked to Hulk about it. How much of your promo that night that you just sort of walked us through was scripted? None. So it was all just freestyling off the top of your head. When you're doing a promo, you know, we don't know. A lot of us don't know anything about formatting a TV show, but we know from, you know, just reading and paying attention that guys have a certain time allotment. When you go out there to do a promo, do you tell gorilla or someone in the truck or whoever I'm going eight minutes, I'm going six minutes, I'm going four minutes. Or you just talk until your heart's content. Do you give them the cue to play the music when you're the boss? What sort of parameters do you put on yourself is what I'm asking. In that situation or generally speaking, generally, generally speaking, no, we, we try to hit a time, you know, I'm, I've been, I, at that point I had been doing promos for a long time and I could, if somebody says you got three minutes, I don't need necessarily a script to help me hit three minutes. I can freestyle it. I can keep my eye on the floor director. I can speed it up or slow it down as need be. And I can come usually within at that time, 15, 20 seconds at the most of hitting my mark. And that was fine. That particular night, because I hadn't really thought about it too much, and that was kind of like just hang with me and we'll adjust the time on the fly. Because um, I had, I had, you know, I, I had work to do and I hadn't given it a lot of thought. It's pretty fun stuff here. Uh, Meltzer loved it. He would write, The ante was upped both brilliantly and stupidly by Bischoff early in the show. Bischoff came out on a huge bike and gloated about McMahon sending his wannabes to him when they all know he isn't there since they know on Mondays he's at Nitro. He called Waltman a puppet from McMahon. And Dave says that DX and the NWO were all really just pawns in the game. The real players were you and Vince. I think that's a pretty fair assessment, don't you? Yeah, that was also, you know, again, looking or listening to you describe what I, what I did or Meltzer describe what I did. Part of that too was Vince worked really hard to, to convince the world that it was Ted Turner versus, versus Vince McMahon. Right. I think because the, the idea of some scrawny little kid that, you know, or scrawny punk that he had a chance to hire and didn't that came in and everybody thought was a joke. It was all of a sudden, you know, dragging him through the mud out in the back 40 that really got to him. And I think he needed the world to feel like big, bad billionaire. Ted was picking on poor little Vince McMahon. So part of that promo was me calling that out as well. Not only by setting, as I referred to woman as a puppet and, and the rest of DX, but really hitting him right between the eyes with, Hey Vince, it's not Ted. It's me. 
you got a problem, come and face me. That was part of that. You go out of your way in this promo to make it clear to people at home. Don't buy the pay-per-view thinking Vince is going to show up because he's not going to, or else he'd get knocked out. And you sort of have to skate this line where you want to create the buzz, but you don't really want to have the backlash of saying he's going to appear when clearly he's not booked, right? Well, it wasn't so much that it was the legal issues that we were facing. So for us, and again, I was walking a razor fine line, but I was a little bit concerned that if I were to say, if I would have led the audience to believe and ask them to buy the pay-per-view or suggest for them to buy the pay-per-view and lead them to believe that Vince McMahon was going to show up and it was an angle it would have only made our legal situation more difficult. So I went out of my way to tell the audience not to buy it if they thought he was going to show up and then make him out to be a coward as a result. So I I had two things to accomplish there. I had to cover my own ass legally or WCW's ass legally, but I wanted to do it in a way that would piss Vince off even more. Meltzer wrote, Both are making themselves bigger stars than their employed entertainers. And as it turns out, both McMahon in particular are great performers in front of the camera. Bischoff was brilliant because McMahon won't be there in Worcester by not being there. It means he's back down from the challenge, not in real life because it's all stupid to begin with. And of course, everyone that needs to pretend whatever they need to pretend will pretend, but also brilliant because DX segments have now become obsolete. He's positioned them as the messenger boys instead of one of the badasses. You rarely agree with Dave, but you have to love his analysis here, right? Doesn't get me hot. Uh, on raw JR is knocking the WCW offices as being part of an industrial park in Smyrna. He's ripping your MTV special. That was two days prior. That was a disaster. And he's saying that wrestling here on the WWF isn't the seniors tour. And they even book Al snow, Jim Cornette and Sean Waltman to all deliver pretty scripted lines bashing WCW. This is definitely the height of the Monday night war. And then Meltzer has a pretty hilarious take in the observer. And I I know you're going to have fun with this. What about the most important question of the week? Who would win if they really fought? I mean, Eric's (laughs) got the martial arts training, but Vince is huge, but Eric's younger and quicker and knows how to deliver (laughs) and punch and kick. But Vince is huge, but Eric does have a gut. And Vince is constantly lifting weights and is still huge, but Brett flattened Vince with one punch, but Vince would tell you, you let him do it. And he's still huge. Believe me within wrestling on Tuesday, this was the most talked about piece of conversation. Do you remember people in, in the, within your organization or your sphere of influence having conversations about what if in this make believe hypothetical situation, there was a couple, and by the way, clearly. Dave Meltzer has a huge fixation on Vince McMahon. Um, a couple people, you know, I mean, the people that <laughs> I think it, it was two. Th- there were there were kind of like two camps. There was the camp that thought it was cool as shit because it was half-assed crazy, and people liked that kind of stuff. But there were a few people that were that knew Vince McMahon. Now, keep in mind, I didn't know Vince at that time. I didn't know what he was made of. I didn't know what his personality was like. I had heard some things, but, you know, it goes in the air, one ear and out the other. Um, but, you know, Hulk came up to me once I cut that promo and he said, dude, what are you doing? 
he said he's good. You know, Hulk, Hulk said he's going to show up and he's going to be hot and he's going to go. I mean, he was actually Hulk was concerned for me. He really was. And I, you know, I, I kind of laughed it off. Randy was the same way. You know, it was like, oh, brother, you don't, oh, man, you don't wake up the sleeping giant, brother. He's going to show up. So I, there were a couple people like that that were convinced that Hulk, or that, excuse me, that, uh, that Vince would show up and that I was probably going to get my ass kicked. And I, I said, whatever, you know, if it happens, it happens. And then there, everybody else was kind of like, wow, this is crazy. This is kind of cool. And I'm sure there was probably three camps. And I'm sure there was some of the boys um, that all of a sudden felt like, well, wow, it's one thing that he's a part of the NWO. Now he's calling out Vince McMahon on national television, kind of stealing our thunder. Right. And, you know, that's fair, I guess. It was written in the observer in the WCW offices. The story is that Eric who has fought real fights and real rings against real people would humiliate Vince in rapid order in the WWF offices. Vince would end it quickly because he's a tough street fighter from the other side of the tracks. And that martial arts stuff doesn't mean a thing. How silly, yeah. <laughs> how silly okay. is all this? <laughs> well, you know, I, how old was I back then? Probably 42. 243. Yeah. yeah, you're 41, 42, something like that. Yeah, I I could still go then. Um, I wasn't in the best shape, as Meltzer pointed out. But, you know, I grew up in Detroit. I got my ass kicked three times a day from the time I was about six years old to the day I left Detroit when I was 14 or 15. Um, I fought a lot as a kid growing up in a pretty shitty part of Detroit. So getting my ass kicked was nothing new to me. I got pretty good as a street fighter. And then I got into martial arts. I wrestled in high school. I was on the AEU freestyle wrestling team and a Greco Roman wrestle AEU Greco wrestle, excuse me, Greco Roman wrestling team after high school, um, and into college. So, you know, between martial arts and wrestling and the fact that, you know, I was pretty used to, to fighting and then add on top of that, you know, the martial arts experience I had by that point, I was a, you know, competitive black belt for a number of years back before it was called, you know, MMA, it was called the PKA, the professional karate association. I had fought on ESPN. I traveled around the country fighting. That's how I met Sonny Ono. So between my, just my martial arts experience and my, my amateur wrestling background, I wasn't that out of shape. And, you know, I had, I had been a bouncer in downtown Chicago in the early eighties before I got into the business. And at that time I was probably 170 pounds, 175 pounds. And I fought big guys on a fairly regular basis, especially big jacked up guys. And they usually were the easiest people to fight because they didn't know how they were big and they intimidated people with their size, but they couldn't throw a punch. And I knew how to stay away from them. I survived as a bouncer in downtown Chicago for a year and a half. So getting into the ring with a big jacked up guy that, you know, just built himself up in a gym didn't really intimidate me. Now, had I known <laughs> what Vince was like inside of his head, um, then the way I do now, I probably would have rethought that. Uh, because I do think Vince is one of those people that would, you know, eat his way out of an elevator to get to you if he had to, especially when his back was up against the wall and particularly when he's embarrassed or 
you know, would be embarrassed the way I embarrassed him and humiliated him. I'm sure he would have been highly motivated had he decided to show up and he probably would have killed me. But at that time, I wasn't too worried about it. And and when I say that, I wasn't, I'm not trying to sound like I was a tough guy right? because I was still 42 years old with a gut (laughs) and it had been a long time since I was a competitive fighter, but I wasn't worried about it either. Mostly because I didn't really understand what Vince McMahon was made of. Let's, uh, let's get to slamboree. You guys had footage of a white limo that Tony Schiavone recently said was shot the day before. And the gimmick is we're trying to tease that Vince McMahon is outside the building. Do you remember when you shot this, uh, footage of the white limo outside the building? No, I wouldn't have done that. That would have been Craig Leathers and guys like Tony and people on our production team. So I, I wasn't involved with it. Tony Schiavone makes the remark. Well, no, if it's McMahon, if we see Jim Ross jump out and start carrying his bags, Tony's line or yours. Honestly, I don't remember. Uh, you also have security at every door and that showed throughout the pay-per-view and even the security camera footage is shown. I mean, obviously no one really believes he's going to show up, but you're just trying to keep a no, common... no, 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 that's not true. That's not true. I, you know, <laughs> by that time, Hulk and, and Randy and a couple other people had convinced me that there was a good chance he was going to show up. And if you talk to Bruce Pritchard about this situation, there was a few moments along the way leading up to this that he wanted to show up and he had to be talked out of it. So I think, you know, I wasn't convinced he wasn't going to show. I was convinced there was a pretty good chance he would. The people that were around me, whose opinions I valued because they had worked with Vince McMahon and they knew him and I didn't, convinced me that there was a good chance he was going to show up. So no, it's not fair to say, not at all fair to say that nobody thought he was going to show up. I did. I was ready for it. I told Doug Dillinger that we made sure that there was dressing rooms in case he did show up. Not, not, we didn't gimmick them. We probably did. I'm more than likely we did show up, but they were legitimately for Vince and whoever he showed up with. I told our security people that if he shows up and makes his way to the ring, do not stop him. And the only person in this, again, to, to make this point is I pulled Big Show. Now, again, now this is, you know, Hulk and a couple other people say, man, you don't want to fuck with this guy. He's going to rip you apart. You know, Hulk had never seen me fight. Randy had never seen me fight. And, you know, they were just doing their best to prepare me and basically talk me out of doing it. Um, I went to Big Show and I said, show, um, if he shows up, do not do anything. Don't stop him. We'll let whatever happens happen in the ring until it gets to the point where there's going to be permanent damage involved. If you think it's going to be an injury that could be permanent, go ahead and stop it. But if it's just an ass kicking and I'm on the receiving end of it, do not interfere and don't let anybody else interfere. That was what I told Paul, you know, as I was making my way to the ring, because I wasn't sure if he was going to show up or not. You also insinuated that having your ass kicked on pay-per-view like this, wouldn't have bothered you quote one bit. I mean, there's no chance your ego here could have handled you getting mauled on your own TV show. Right? Oh, fuck that. Are you kidding me? Hell, I let everybody else beat my ass and I didn't make any extra money for it. It would have been awesome. 
I, I did. This is a part, and again, this isn't me. I'm, I'm sixty. I'm going to be sixty-three years old on Saturday. All right. It's not me being a tough guy, but this is just real life. I had gotten my throughout my life. I'd got my ass kicked for fifty cents. <laughs> I got my ass kicked for fun. I paid money sometimes to get my ass kicked. Getting my ass kicked just wasn't the worst thing in the world to me. What was her name? <laughs> you know, my, but, you know, people think, oh, my God, it would have been so bad if you would have gotten your ass kicked. Why? Why is it so bad? We do it for fun. You know, you're in college. You, know, you go out and you get in a bar fight with somebody and, you know, 20 minutes after the fight's over, you're sitting there drinking beer and playing pool. It's not the end of the world. And even at that time, and that's why, you know, when everybody around me tell me, no, he's going to kick your ass, he's going to kill you, he's going to dig your eye right out of your skull, I'm thinking, eh, I don't think that's going to happen. But if he beats my ass, he beats my ass. So what? It'll be the best television ever made. When did you hear Stephanie's college graduation being that weekend was really the reason that Vince wasn't going to show. When do you, when do you remember hearing that? Was that the day of the day after weeks later? No, it later? was, it was after it was a few days after I think, or a week after, but it was, it was well after, but let's, you know, since we've sort of covered, I mean, I guess we should just say that the actual match never happened. Surprise. Uh, buffer introduces you and then McMahon when nobody comes out for McMahon, you have the fans sort of count with you to count McMahon out. And then you announce yourself as the winner. Uh, Meltzer writes that one of the original ideas for this creative was to have you kick a doll or a blow up doll or a mannequin or something in the head to win. Was that ever considered or was it always this count out finish? That is so stupid that, that, that wouldn't no. that was always the finish. I don't know where he got that shit. That is just, that is the silliest. I mean, every week you, you, you tell me what Meltzer writes and I say, that is the stupidest shit I've ever heard. And then every week you top it. Well, tune in next week. I'm looking forward to it. Um, it's awesome. Dave wrote, Dave wrote too, since everyone knew McMahon wasn't going to be there, this came off badly, but I was actually expecting worse. How did you think it came off, you know, at the time? And now, since you've had a chance to get feedback all these years later, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, as you say. How do you think it came off then, and how do you think it ages now? I think it came off great then because it fit my character. I was a smarmy chicken shit heel, and th the way it played made me an even bigger smarmy chicken shit heel. Um, so I thought it played perfectly. And if this was, if that situation, if I was faced with that situation or that opportunity, and Everything was exactly the same. I would do the exact same thing. I wouldn't change a thing. Well, let's talk about the fallout. Uh, but before we do, I want to circle back to the part of the story that I think is most overlooked. And it's after you make this announcement on nitro that you've challenged Vince McMahon, Vince McMahon responds through his website. He wrote, I consider Eric bitch off. He misspelled your name. His challenge, a cheap and desperate tactic to increase WCW PPV buys. I will not do anything to help. <laughs> yeah, WCW. Not unlike showing up at, with, and, and pretending you're trying to invade an arena or, or, or an office building, but I can't, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, bro, but come on. I That's, will not do anything. Do you, do you sense the irony here? Sure. Of course. All right. 
I will not do anything to help WCW increase their PPV buys. Therefore, I will not appear at Turner's next PPV as invited. However, if Mr. Bitchoff is hell bent on fighting me, then such a fight can be arranged at any time in any parking lot in the country, void of television cameras, photographers, and public announcement. You had to be pretty excited to see him acknowledge this in a public way, were you not? Sure. And Meltzer sort of covers this in the, in the newsletter and the headline is, is there a method to Eric Bischoff's madness or is it just madness at this point, man, you're meet, you're knee deep in wrestling, you know, feuds and all this craziness had that started to sort of take its toll. I mean, do you think you were fucking being driven a little crazy by professional wrestling by mid 98? No, I was having a blast. Well, this is when maybe things aren't as fun because Jerry McDivitt sends you a very threatening legal letter and allegedly they even go to complain to all the cable companies about you guys doing a bait and switch here and both sides have their 900 lines hopping. This is the very definition of controversy creates cash. Is it not? Truly is. You reply to that letter by reading it on the air on thunder from Durham, New Hampshire. And I think this is what everybody sort of glosses over. Jerry McDivitt, who's been painted to wrestling fans as being the Billy badass of attorneys, sends you a letter in the middle of this blood feud of the Monday night war. And you're like, fuck it. I'm reading it on air. And by the way, let's run a couple of Rocky training montages for a match with McMahon. Let's double down. That all happens on thunder right before slam And almost nobody talks about this. I don't know why. As you're walking to the ring that night, you grab a sign from a fan that says, Vince is a yellow bellied ass and you hold it up to the camera. And then you talk a little bit about the letter you got from the attorney. You pull your reading glasses out from the inside of your jacket and you say something like I've gotten a little old, so I need to wear glasses and you read it word for word. And you're like shouting out Jerry and calling him Jer. And, uh, I mean, it is a phenomenal piece of business that you're doing here and you just read this whole fucking letter. And of course it's all available now. Um, on the WWE network. And at the end you say something like, but I'll tell you what, Vince, even though I don't think you've got the guts and even though your attorney is saying you're not going to be there, the invitation is still open. We'll have security posted around the building at three o'clock. Doug Dillinger, our head security will be outside and we'll escort you to your dressing room. Should you change your mind up to you, Vinnie Mac. Hope to see you there. Good night, everybody. Uh, was anybody against you reading the letter that you guys are in the middle of multiple lawsuits? This feels like a bit of a risk. What say you, um, you know what? I, I know, you know, the crit- my critics that listen to this podcast, you know, like to bust my balls for not remembering things. And usually they, they, they associate with me, me not recalling something with something negative, but as cool as that is, that scene, the way you just laid it out to me, as cool as it was, I honestly don't remember that either, but I wish now I'm going to go back and look for it. Cause it was fucking awesome the way you laid it out to me, but I, but I don't recall it. And what I'm going to respond with is what I'm pretty certain happened, even though I don't remember the conversation, but I would not have done that. I would not have read that letter at that point in the midst of that litigation without an approval from, from Turner legal. There's just no way I would have done it. I, I didn't, I didn't freestyle and surprise the Turner legal department by pulling out that letter and reading it. I would have gotten approval beforehand. Well, and I'm glad you did because the next day, the day after Slambury. So you have your, 
your count out victory over Vince McMahon and Slamboree. And the very next day you got sued the WWF in Connecticut for two, $2 million in punitive damages for repeated and continuous use of the WCW trademarks on TV. And this is almost identical to the way you guys sued or you guys were sued in 96 for the use of Holland Nash. They're saying that the WWF is attempting to confuse mistake and deceive the public at large. WCW has also asked for a court injunction against both the WWF and the USA network to prohibit them from using any more WCW marks, disparaging the WCW product on its television programming and prohibiting any of the likenesses or ring names of the wrestlers under contract to WCW to be used to promote their business. This is pretty genius because you guys basically take a fucking carbon copy of the shit they pulled against you two years prior. And now you push it on them. And you're even citing the, the now famous Jim Cornette promo from October of 97, where he's burying a lot of WCW guys, yourself included the, uh, December 1st raw, where, when they're trying to humiliate Jim Neidhart, they have DX spray paint WCW on his rear. And then the announcer says the only thing more humiliating would be to work for WCW. And then they list Waltman's promo the night after WrestleMania 14. And of course the thing at the scope, you know, with the tank, they specifically even cite that Hunter and Waltman are wearing WCW armbands there. And they're taking the company to task for lying about the free tickets because the show was sold out. And here's maybe my favorite part. And this is awesome. The lawsuit says that X-Pac is really just a ripoff of the WCW character Six-Pac. This is fucking great. These are the same people who sued you guys for saying that Scott Hall is basically ripping off the Razor Ramon character and you're trying to confuse people. And you just say, oh yeah, well fucking X-Pac is Six-Pac. You can't do that shit either. This is the Monday Night War, is it not? Sure was. Unfortunately, you know, Turner Legal got pretty aggressive and finally got dialed in to what was really going on. They got dialed in too late in the game. Had they been more aggressive, had they made moves like that earlier in that process, I think the outcome of the lawsuit might have been different. Let me just give you one example. And I, in fact, I just saw this on um, my timeline on Twitter uh, today. Somebody had posted something about Scott Hall's debut in WCW. Um, and I don't remember what year it was, but it was like 27 years ago today is when the diamond stud showed up in WCW with a freaking toothpick and his hair slicked back looking just like Razor Ramon. Admittedly, not with the Mexican or the, the Cuban accent, but visually you would have a really hard time convincing anybody in a jury that was awake that there was a massive distinction between those two characters, me, Razor Ramon, and Diamond Stud. But WCW Legal, it took them a long time to get up to speed. It just did. They weren't really in the fight the way Jerry McDivitt was. And they didn't have a Vince McMahon pushing a Jerry McDivitt. So I, I really wish Turner would have gotten a little bit more aggressive, not a little bit. I wish they would have gotten a lot more aggressive a lot sooner, but attorneys being attorneys, you know, they're risk adverse. It's all about minimizing exposure and minimizing risk as opposed to getting in the mud and winning the fight. And they got in the mud a little bit at the end and they tried to fight a little bit at the end, but the momentum had shifted by that point so much legally speaking and, and in other ways that it, it there's no way they were going to come out of it whole, but I admire the effort. 
So the night after Slamboree, Jim Ross goes on the hotline and says that, uh, and no one's referenced. I should remind you, this is the day they filed a lawsuit. So there's no reference to WCW or Bischoff on raw at all that night. So all this back and forth, ha ha DX shit is done because of this lawsuit. But Jr. goes to the hotline and takes a jab at you and sort of wonders how the nitro girls were hired. Is that a low blow? I think it's silly. Sure. Um, kind of childish. I don't, I don't consider. I don't think I considered it then a low blow. I mean, that's pretty obvious what he was trying to imply, but I don't think it really, didn't really matter to me at the time. Speaking of childish, that same night on Nitro, you opened the show on the motorcycle with a crown on. I've always been curious why the motorcycle. It feels like you booked yourself into a lot of motorcycle things here. Did you write this? Did someone else? Someone probably suggested it to me. I mean, I had you know I had a pretty badass bike. And that was the the image that I wanted that character to have. Um, I rode my motorcycle to work every day. By the way, not every day because it was Atlanta. But if the weather was good, I rode my chopper to work. So it wasn't like this was just something I you know tried to create for television. It was a part of who I was. And either I don't know if I came up with it or somebody else did. You know, probably, maybe Ellis Edwards did. Ellis was a big bike guy, and he was there behind the scenes. And you know, he he he'd come up with some wacky shit, um, because he could do it. You know, he, he I could I could see Ellis coming to me say, "No, next time you do an entrance, yeah, I could I could set up some rigging so we could lower you down out of the ceiling, or you know, drive your bike up a ramp into the ring, or whatever." And probably sounded pretty cool to me. That'd be my guess. So help me understand here. Do you think in hindsight, this was Eric Bischoff, the man or Eric Bischoff, the character here on the motorcycle with the crown on his head. Does it age? Well, is it a bad look for you? No, I mean, it was a little bit of both. Look, but my character was me with the volume turned way up. And me riding to the ring on a motorcycle with a crown on my head or coming down from the ceiling or whatever. The, I'm not sure which one it was. Um, it was part of me just being a smarmy punk. It was me gloating. It was me being the heel that I that I was pretty good at fucking being. Um, and and do, do, do I look back at it now and say, gosh, I wish I wouldn't have done it? Hell no. I look at it now and I laugh. I think it was great at that time. Wouldn't do it today. It'd look a little ridiculous out there now, but at that time, it kind of fit with my character. It fit with the whole image of what the NWO was. It was counterculture. It was anarchy. We were doing everything we could think of that was different than the way everybody else did it. So no, I I, I think it aged fine. Vince did a prodigy chat three months later and was asked why I didn't show up at Slambury, and he says, Mister Bischoff was received a letter indicating that any parking lot in any city in America would be a suitable location for me to meet him rather than me show up at a Turner PPV and increase their buy rates. I chose to offer Mr. Bischoff a fight with no TV coverage, just Bischoff versus Vince. I got no response. Did you guys ever talk about this when you went to work up there? Is this something you guys ever just sort of talked about over beers or did it never come up? Never came up. If you had to do any of this over again, would you do anything differently? You sort of insinuated 
you know, earlier that you didn't think you would, but now that we've went through everything here, would you have done anything any differently in hindsight? Nope. Well, let's talk about some things you wish you could do over. And that's the bullshit you laid down on that Bret Hart episode a couple of weeks back. We mentioned that last week's episode was in the can before we had a chance to review, but now we're going to go back. We're going to get in our rewind machine. If you haven't listened to our Bret Hart episode, please do. It's at 83weeks.com. And I had an entire format based around one idea. And the idea was that Bret Hart was offered a contract in 1996 from WCW, and it was a pretty substantial offer. And my entire format was based around this, what I believe to be fact and Bischoff called bullshit and said that was not true. And it did not happen. In the meantime, everyone and their brother has come out of the woodwork to tell me differently, including a detailed explanation from Dave Meltzer, where he personally had this contract. What does he have? Does he have it now? I'm sure it's going to look at it. I'm sure it's going to pop up. But all the details that he laid out, he actually has a copy of it. And a lot of other, then why, have, then why haven't we seen it? A lot of other wrestlers who, and people who, uh, were close to Brett, including some of his family members who listened to the show that I probably shouldn't name drop say they too saw it. And so as if this weren't enough, and I thought it might be you yourself acknowledged the shit in 1997. So let's get into it. You did a couple of prodigy chats in 1997. The first one was January, 1997. And the question on prodigy was Eric, what do you think of stars like Shawn Michaels, Sabu, Taz, Bret Hart, and the pure real wrestlers? Would you like to bring them to the WCW NWO? And if so, in what way DDP rules? And you responded, I find it ironic that someone would throw Taz and Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels in the same category and refer to the group as real wrestlers. Everyone knows that I love, I would love to have Bret Hart on our roster. He's not only a phenomenal talent, but one of the class acts in our industry, both in and out of the ring. I'm not sure Shawn Michaels would ever fit on our roster. And I don't know enough about Taz to have an opinion. I've only seen brief clips of him. So you're saying everyone knows I would love to have him. No big deal. Let's fast forward to April of 1997. Another prodigy chat. And the question is, could you shed some light on the Bret Hart situation? It's my understanding that there were a number of dealings and problems between Hart and WCW and the WWF. And you reply, there were no problems. I laid a deal on the table. Vince laid a deal on the table. Bret made a decision he thought was in his best interest. And I enjoyed every minute of my dealings with Bret Hart and hope he feels the same about me. I hold him in my highest regard personally and professionally and wish he had made a different decision. So what's your question? You said you'd never made a fucking offer. And now here you're saying I laid a, a, a deal down and Brett chose a different one. Who was I talking to in that prodigy chat? Bob Ryder. Who'd Bob Ryder work for? WCW. So your question is me as a character. And as, and as the guy that ran the company, because they were, they were one and the same, you're suggesting to me that I used an extension of WCW, which was the prodigy chat with an employee by the name of Bob Ryder who worked for us. Your bitch is the fact that I used that format to help get over a talent that I thought I may work with in the future. 
what would you have supposed I should have said? He's a piece of shit. He's a fucking idiot for no. going back to work for Vince no. McMahon. The issue is not saying that. The issue is two weeks ago, you were on this show denying you ever offered him a contract. And here you, here's written evidence where you admit you did offer him a deal. I said, I offered him a deal on a prodigy chat. Did you, would you have believed everything that I said or anybody else said in the WCW magazine or on the hotline oh, wait. Are or, you, are or you everything that WW that Vince McMahon would have said in a WWF magazine? It was promotion. It was hype. Are you fucking serious right now? Bret it's Hart what has- I remember. Listen, I've said to you before, I prefaced when you ask me these kind of details of shit that went down 20 years ago, if Dave Meltzer or Dave Meltzer's relatives or anybody else wants to show up and say, here's the agreement that you, ne- that you said you never offered, I will eat it. Wait, can we I will eat it? Literally eat it on Twitch. Yeah. Okay. Just a couple pages of it. Not the whole thing. That's what she said. So, um, (laughs) here's another thing from this, from this same prodigy chat. I'm not done. Eric, what one wrestler active or not in any organization, would you like to come to WCW? And you said, I'm pretty happy with our roster, just the way it fits. There's really nobody out there that would be available. I'd be interested in, as I said before, I wish Bret Hart had made a different decision. Other than that, I can't think of a piece of talent. I regret not having on our roster. Someone follows up and says, you keep saying you wish Brett had made a different decision. What were your plans for him? And you get fucking detailed. You say there was a lot of opportunity. We discussed, there were several matches Brett could have had that would have been big money matches. Certainly he and sting would have been a big success. That would have been phenomenal. Given all the rhetoric between Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan, the personal issues there would have been a tremendous thing to play off of. And there were a number of really interesting scenarios that we would have put him in a much brighter spotlight than he has now. I, and I can't, I can't, I'm, and I'm not being a smart ass here, right? I'm trying really hard to find out, to put myself in your shoes and try to understand why you think that is so abstract given the situation in 97. I hired him in 90. What, what, what year did I hire him? 97 and 98. I don't the, remember. The, the very end of 1997, he showed up and, uh, all right. Yeah. All right. So, so I, obviously I had respect for the guy when I hired him, obviously I would have wanted to hire him. And obviously I'm going to say things, especially in a fucking prodigy chat where I'm trying to put people over and put our company over. I'm going to put anybody that I'm talking about, particularly somebody that I may or may not work with in the future in a positive light. And for the life of me, I can't figure out why the fuck you have a problem with that. I have a problem with you saying you didn't offer him a contract and saying it's all fucking fantasy. And this I'm, st- I'm sticking to it until somebody shows. Don't tell me Dave Meltzer saw it. Don't tell me Bret Hart's cousin saw it. All right. If I did, and if I don't remember doing it, I will pay the price. I will eat that fucking thing on twitch.tv forward slash 83 weeks. But until somebody shows it to me, I'm sticking to my shit. I'm not done. We got one more thing I want to hit you with because you have been so critical of Dave Meltzer and he has responded saying that you're a con man and you're a liar and that you've been caught here. And he goes out of his way to, and I believe him tell the truth that you're fucking way off base on this Bret Hart contract. And it's all bullshit. 
but here's what you said about Meltzer back then. Here's the question from the prodigy chat, April 97, thousands of wrestling fans subscribe to the wrestling observer newsletter and call it and call the wrestling observer hotline all the while expecting to read or hear the best and insider WCW news. Since so many fans spend their hard earned money on this newsletter and hotline. And since you're at the center of WCW happenings, could you please share with us your personal measurement of the observers accuracy and the access to inside WCW news? Does Dave Meltzer have the amount of scoops that we think he does? And you say, actually, Dave Meltzer individually is far more accurate than anybody else that I read. Meltzer doesn't have a tendency to editorialize as much as some of the other writers and also relies on information he gets from arenas, rating reports, buy rate information, etc. And he gets that from legitimate sources. Many of the others rely on second, third, or fourth hand information and are too lazy or too cheap to get quality information firsthand. Do you feel differently now in 2018? No. Back then, I was actually considering doing something with Dave. There, there was a point in time where I was actually talking to Dave Meltzer, and I wanted to try to bridge the gap. Because, by the way, this is the guy, I know people are tired of hearing about it, but I can't help it, reported that Mabel was under consideration to be the third man in the NWO. Where the fuck did that come from? What little bird, what stooge decided to spill that to Dave? And Dave, without picking up the phone, without verifying it, prints it, reports it. Not as, an, not as allegedly, <laughs> he reports it. He's full, he's full of shit. But there was a point in time when I thought, all right, this guy's going to exist. A lot of the stuff that he prints is detrimental to WCW it was detrimental to WWE too, or WWF at the time and w, now WWE so detrimental, by the way, I'm jumping forward now on a timeline while I was working at the WWE, Vince McMahon called the talent meeting, everybody, not just talent production, people, everybody, all hands on deck, everybody got around the ring. And for 45 minutes, we listened to Vince McMahon threaten everybody in the building. If they even had a breath of a conversation with Dave Meltzer because of the adverse impact that Dave Meltzer was having on the WWE business. This is going back now to 2002-2003. And the same situation existed back in 97 and 98. And there was a period of time through Zane Breslov, because Zane talked to, to, to Dave, where Zane tried to broker a peace accord, if you will, between myself and Meltzer. And I thought, all right, I'm going to make myself available. If he wants to report facts, if he wants to write inside information. And yes, and by the way, I've said this in interviews and I've said this on, on this show um, in, in the last four weeks. Dave Meltzer does get good information about ratings. Oh, by the way, it's publicly released. Any idiot can get it if they want to spend more than five minutes. You don't have to spend nine ninety a month or whatever the hell Dave Meltzer charges you to get it. But there is some of that information that's available. Meltzer did have some contacts with building arenas and he does get accurate information on ticket sales, on television ratings, on pay-per-view buy rates, all of that stuff. He did a good job doing that. I, I, I said it then and I will say it now. But a lot of the junk in between was bullshit. Just nonsense. And yeah, I decided at a certain point with a little bit of conversation from, from Zane Breslov, rather than fighting it, you know, it's like the old saying, 
you know, keep your friends close, put your enemies closer. That's exactly what that was. And even though I had opened the door and given Dave access, he still continued to print bullshit. And that's when I slammed the door and said, fuck it. There's no hope. There's no hope. Did you ever watch the series on HBO? Um, oh, what the fuck is the name of that series? Oh, you got me so worked up now. I can't even think of it. Game of Thrones. No. You never watched it. No, I watched series I watched on the, HBO. I don't there was know what a, it is. A, I just, I just there, didn't watch it. There's a character called Varus on that character. And I'm not going to go into the whole thing. But this guy, he's called the Master of the Whisperers. He's like this eunuch, this goofy-looking eunuch. But his his power, his position is he has all these – he calls them little birds. They're stooges. And this is how the guy holds on to his power, by having all these little spies around him. Well, these little spies all feed him information that they think he wants to hear, and that's what gives them their power, and that's what helps them survive, and that's what gives the eunuch, the master of the whispers, his power within the kingdom and the Game of Thrones. That's a a fictional television character. But Dave Meltzer is like the living version of that. Did you see the the episode of Table for Three that I did with Cornette? I know you did with Cornette yeah. and, and Michael Michael Hayes. Yeah. First time Jim Cornette and I and, and by the way, I kind of dig Jim Cornette. So this isn't you know busting balls here, but this is just a fact. And you can go back and watch it if you haven't seen. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the listeners. All of this hype for years. Jim Cornette's burying me. He hates my guts. He can't stand me. He wants to rip out my throat. All that crap that he used to spew. Right. And I could never figure it out because I never worked with the guy. I never had anything probably longer than a two-minute conversation about a week after I started in WCW when I was about three rungs up the ladder from the guy that took out the garbage. So I could never really figure out why the fuck he was so hot. So when this table for three came along, not this past WrestleMania, but the one before that, and they called me and said, hey, would you mind sitting down with Jim Cornette? I'm like, sure, I'll sit down with anybody. I don't care. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? So it's Michael Hayes, myself, and Jim Cornette, and they teed it up. I don't remember exactly how it went, but they teed it up, and it was like, you know, where, where did all this heat start between you and Bischoff? And Cornette starts laying it all out there, like this version of this, you know, fucking masterminded Machiavellian bullshit stunt that I pulled on him that I had nothing to do with. And it was Michael Hayes. I didn't even have to say a word. In fact, I didn't say a word. I just sat there and I listened and I listened and I listened. And I'm listening to Cornette lay this whole thing out here, how I undermine him and his attempt to do something with WCW and Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And I buried the tape and I went into the production studio and told him to erase it. Whatever the shit the story was, I don't remember anymore. And Michael Hayes looked, and this was so funny because Michael Hayes has never been a big fan of mine either. Michael Hayes looked at Jim Cornette and said, well, Jim. You know, Eric wasn't in charge back then, right? <laughs> and you could just feel the air get sucked out of the room. And from that point forward, Jim and I got along fine. But I, and I said to Jim, I said, Jim, where did you hear this? And Jim said, well, I got my stooges. I said, well, that's what you get. So when, when Dave Meltzer, who relies on, you know, whoever he relied on in WCW or Brian Alvarez, who said he talked to somebody who had been there for 20 years – it was probably some mid-level stooge, some little bird that liked to feed information, that loved to gossip because that's how they were really good at. But they weren't close enough to the epicenter of anything to share any kind of reasonably accurate information. And that's the kind of shit that hurt. 
WCW. That's the kind of shit that hurt WWE. And by the way, when it hurts the company, it hurts the talent. It hurts the business in general. So when people ask why I get hot about some of the things that were written and said back then, it's not personal. I I responded to somebody on Twitter today who asked me why I hate Dave Meltzer. I don't hate Dave Meltzer. I'll sit down and I'll have a beer with Dave Meltzer. I can laugh with Dave Meltzer. I walked up when we were at the Wale thing last year. I walked up, slapped him on the back, sat down next to him and did a panel with him. I don't have any heat with him, or at least he probably, I probably, I probably do, but I don't, I don't. He doesn't know he with me. I don't care. doesn't matter. But I will call out bullshit. And by the way, for the freaking record, since it's so important to you, I'll say it again. Just the way I said it when you first asked me the question. I can't remember 22 fucking years ago the details of these guys. Just like you won't be able to remember. 15 years from now, you're not going to be able to remember the seventh mortgage that you wrote the week after you started. <laughs> All right. Well, here's what I'm not going to do though. I'm not going to go on a public forum where millions of people are going to hear it and say, no, that guy who says I offered him that mortgage, he's fucking lying. He's delusional. He's a loser. It's all made I still believe it. By the way, I'll say it again. I think it's bullshit. I still do. And I'll continue. I will go to my grave saying it's bullshit because I'm not lying. I believe it's bullshit. And I'll continue to believe it's bullshit till somebody puts a contract, a legitimate one in my face with my signature on it. And then I'll eat the fucker. But until then, <laughs> it's bullshit. He is E. Bischoff. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. Anything we want to, any final last words here before you hang up on me and go punch the dog or whatever it is you're going to do? Well, I'm not going to punch my dog, brother. <laughs> I know. We've had a lot of conversations about your dog. By the way, if you're not following Eric, you should follow Eric just so you can see his dog. Maybe the most photogenic dog on Twitter. Thank you for that. Yeah, see, I can be nice at the end. Now, are, are we done? Because fuck you, Eric. How's that? You made that shit up. <laughs> you got me. Here's the problem with this kind of shit, right? I drank about two quarts of this high-power organic tea, and I do that because it's. You know, I've been working all day. You've been working all day, and I, I know you're going to grill me. I know you're going to Jerry McDivitt my ass. I know that you're going to come at me from four or five different angles, and they call me out because I stumble because I don't remember something that happened 22 fucking years ago. And you're going to make a big damn deal about it and go on and on and on and on and on. So I drink this tea so that I can stay on my game. But here's what happens. Now we're going to close this show up. And I'm going to sit up till about 3 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> bouncing my head off the bed rail. Thanks to you. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. Motherfucker. And we are out of time. Until next week, right here at 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.